0: Philanthropy itself is about making money and giving something back. And as we know, if that money is being made through tobacco products or gaming products or a company making cluster bombs, I mean, that's an ethical mind trap right there. How do you get comfortable with the idea of philanthropy if that's where that money is coming from?
1: I'm Lee Matthews, and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. The concept of shared value has gained popularity in recent years, with recognition that solving social and environmental problems requires the input, participation and action of all stakeholders. Leveraging the resources and innovation capacity of the private sector is key to solving the world's most pressing problems. And as the logic goes, if businesses can benefit it at the same time, it's a win-win. But is shared value a panacea for solving all of our problems? Or is there still a role for philanthropy and charity and activism? I invited my guest today, Phil Preston, onto the podcast to chat all about shared value and his work in solving complex social challenges. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Phil.
0: Hi, Lee. Great to be here. Wonderful
1: to have you. I want to ask you something I ask everybody. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally?
0: I would say good has so many dimensions right we can go into you know is is it the same thing to be doing something good as a person versus being a good person but good to me I think is about having an abundance mindset it's one where you make the connection and see that you live in a community and that it's those connections that really add value to us in our lives. However, it's not something you always see here and now. So it takes a little bit of investment in it. And I think displaying acts of goodwill and doing good things really help not only the people around us, but they help us ultimately. So yeah, I'm not sure that's the best definition, but it's the best one I got right now.
1: Do you think doing good is something that you live in every aspect of your daily life or is it something that you kind of silo off into work or family or community?
0: Yeah, in terms of making a difference, if we're talking about that form of doing good, I integrate it into my work because my work revolves a little bit like you, revolves around helping businesses do good. Although I'm finding currently there's a little bit of a space emerging where people want that personal guidance as well that's attached to the business piece. So I'm really looking for good that happens in the core of everyday business activities. I like what people do in terms of giving and being responsible, but I really see a lot more, I guess, potential for impact when it's built in and hardwired into business. And that takes a bit of work. Absolutely.
1: Phil, you left a very comfortable corporate career where you were overseeing $50 billion worth of investments and you decided to pursue your goal of supporting companies to move beyond the symbolic acts of charity and and really align social and environmental challenges with core business priorities. That totally speaks to me that, you know, obviously we do very similar work and have very similar motivations, but I'm curious to understand why you made that shift you're obviously you know very comfortable having a great career as some people would be totally happy with that.
0: Yeah well um, by the way of background I was born and bred in Hobart Tasmania and for people who understand Australia. Sometimes we cop a bit of flack for being from Tasmania, but uh, I think it's a very special place. And I got a degree in mathematics and ended up, uh, I tell people I had to go overseas for work and I moved to Sydney from Hobart. And I started my working life with an insurance company that is currently in the news for doing some very wrong things. So you might be able to guess which, in- <laughs> sorry, it's an insurance and asset management company these days. But when I joined it, it was a, a pretty conservative old organisation and it was before it demutualized. It was a different world. But I went into that as a trainee actuary and um, they're a bit like accountants, but with less personality. And I shifted soon into the investment side of that business. And I had a great career over 17 years. I worked in the investment side of that. And you think, well, what could go wrong? What could go wrong was I stepped back one day and, and asked that dreaded one word question called why? And it was at that point I realized a lot of my personal goals in life because i'm not a religious person i don't sort of worship any particular faith or philosophy or religion and i really just had this idea in my head that i would earn some good money bring up my family have a good marriage and life and then i could retire early and give something back afterwards i wasn't at that point but as i got sort of closer to that goal i just felt there was a big hollowing out inside of me and I needed something bigger to aim at or more interesting and even more creative to aim at. So yeah, I left the comfort of a regular good paycheck for the roller coaster ride of the gig economy. It certainly is a roller coaster.
1: How did you get started? Because I know from my work that sometimes this idea of you know moving beyond symbolic acts of charity is a hard pill to swallow for companies in particular that like to tick a box and say, we're doing good. This is corporate social responsibility. It's part of the marketing department. And we're not really interested in how to do better at that because it is about how it looks on the outside often and i I like to call it good washing so how do you have those difficult conversations and get people to actually or get companies to actually move beyond that
0: when i I left the corporate world i really didn't know or have a framework to work from then i was just thinking this would be nice to go into this space i knew one thing though is that to actually encourage companies to do better you had to connect it to profitability somehow and Inevitably, I'm sure you find this. The you know, part of the challenge is if someone's giving money or spending it in their CSR program on something good, it's hard to pull people up and say, you know, maybe that's not the most effective thing you could do. <laughs> you really want to sometimes, but you sort of can't because it's not socially acceptable in many cases to do that. But by the same token, you look at what's going on, and for the philanthropy itself is about making money and giving something back. And as we know, if that money is being made through tobacco products or gaming products or a company making cluster bombs and you could go on. I mean, that that's an ethical mind trap right there. How do you get comfortable with the idea of philanthropy if that's where that money's coming from? So my journey was to sort of look around and, and I noticed some companies were doing some extraordinary things and others were doing pretty average things. But I came across a consulting piece of work, the label, I wouldn't say the concept, I'd say the label shared value was put on this idea of when you connect profit with purpose and it was put on by Professor Michael Porter from Harvard Business School and Mark Kramer who was a strategic philanthropist and they didn't come up with it, I guess the concept at all but what they did was I mean Michael Porter was the first person coming from inside the business world who was saying it and so therefore it was getting more traction than it ordinarily would have so I guess I felt that That was great. Someone was using the language of business to try and lift us up above just thinking philanthropy and CSR is how we're going to change the world because the figures, if you do the sums, there's not enough money there to change anything. We rely on the guts of business to do that. And, you know, by the same token, clearly business do some bad things. And when they do bad things, it's the whole of the business doing bad things. You know, they create a lot more negative impacts than they could ever make up for in their giving and their CSR activities.
1: And I mean, the shared value concept has become, I would say, more understood and that term itself more popular in the past few years. There's certainly a shift from the term corporate social responsibility to the shared value space, Do you think that some businesses struggle to understand the shared value concept and that's why they shy away from it and stick to that straight up CSR model?
0: Yes and yes. When the concept first started becoming a bit talked about, which was about 2013, I noticed there was an uptick in interest and I was leading a corporate sort of discovery group because we're all sort of, I guess, trying to understand this new concept. And what I noticed was... A lot of the companies and they're all sizable companies they basically just rebadged everything that was csr and they decided to call it shared value overnight and the way the conversations would go would be oh no we're doing this thing we're giving to this community or this group and that's really good for us uh, i'm sure people are going to buy more of our products because they'll see our name attached to it and therefore we'll call it creating shared value because we're connecting profit with purpose And then you say, okay, well, what's the actual metric? What's the performance measure that's telling you that that is driving more sales for you? And at that point, you know, it was like, oh, I don't know. We haven't quite made that connection yet. Yeah, yeah. And things would break down. So quite clearly, people were enthused about the idea. But yeah, it was challenging them. More broadly, the concept itself, to be honest, I don't use the terminology that much because it confuses. I don't know if you've found this, but I can sit down with some CEOs and they get it after half an hour of discussion and I've sat down with other CEOs who after an hour you think you've got it across, you've given all the examples, you've kept it really simple and as you're getting up to leave, they make some comment that makes it very clear they've got no idea what you're just talking (laughs) about. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So in a nutshell for listeners, how would you describe shared value?
0: Yeah, well, i describe it as when you're really connecting Profit with purpose. So you're helping to address a societal challenge through profitable business. And it all stems from, you know, the fact that there's, for every business, there's social and environmental factors out there that are imposing costs on you or that represent opportunities for you. And they can represent opportunities for you to differentiate your business and come up with something new or a solution that no one else has come up with. Or it could be about you working collaboratively with, say, other players in your industry to take on an issue together so that you lift the profitability of the whole industry. Sure, I put an example around this just because... Yeah, I think that would be useful. Yeah. Yeah, out of the abstract space because a lot of people aren't familiar with this. I'll use one of our local banks as an example, and it's not a major bank. It's a regional bank that starts with B, and it's the Bendigo Bank. They were actually named in Fortune magazine's Change the World list a couple of years back And they were at number 13 on this global change the world list. And you know they were surrounded by Apple, Toyota, Walmart, and Unilever, a lot of big companies. And I can imagine someone in the US, an executive in the US or Europe picking up this list and just wondering, who the heck is Bendigo Bank? But anyway, the reason they were there was because it was the culmination of some work that started in the late 90s when the big banks in Australia were pulling out of regional towns. And what this meant was a lot of towns were left without a banking presence therefore people would have to drive sometimes hundreds of kilometres and hours to go to another major centre to do their banking. And when they went to another centre to do their banking, they'd often do more of their spending in another town as well. So we had this pattern emerging where smaller towns in Australia were contracting economically, and it was also helping to bring social issues to the fore. So Bendigo Bank saw this as an opportunity, and the opportunity wasn't just to put in a standard bank branch because that would probably be loss making as well. But they came up at that point with their community bank model where they sort of do a direct partnership with local community to bring a bank branch presence into town or back to town. And they do it in a win-win way. So there's now 320 community bank branches across Australia, or I think it's a bit more than that. They employ 1500 people and it's helped Benigo grow its balance sheet by more than $34 billion. So it's a really nice example of of a win-win. But what I like even more about this example is if you think about this, you know, how would Bendigo have acted if it had taken this on with its philanthropic or its CSR agenda? And you go, well, look, maybe they would have got up one, two or three branches at most and then they would realize they were loss-making, so they would have closed them down. But what they've done by bringing it into the core of their business, it's, you know, there's 320-plus branches out there. So it's really energizing to find that. Um, but just to finish on a point here, it's it's also it's an innovation challenge. So it's not always easy to go in and find these opportunities with a simple recipe. The process is the thing, and that's what I specialize in and work in is bringing the process, but at the end of the day, I don't know the client's business. What I can do is take them through a process and we try and discover as many possibilities as we can and then they can prioritise which ones look best for them.
1: Something in the shared value model that also I think is misunderstood is that it can often seem difficult to reconcile the profitability goals or objectives of a profit making business with those of other stakeholders that have completely different objectives, whether they be social or environmental. And I think that can cause a bit of a tension, at least initially, but often people realize both sides that they are actually both wanting the same thing. Ultimately, what kind of process do you take clients and wider stakeholder groups, such as you know, charities or the the not-for-profit community more broadly. What process do you take them through to get to a point where you are finding those shared value objectives?
0: All you really need to do is go to a company or a business and say, what's the top 10 challenges you're facing today? And you write down those top 10 challenges. Some of them will be fairly operational, some will be strategic, some of them might be life or death challenges for them. And then you can take the opposite lens and say, okay, if you look around the industry they're in or the region they're operating in, what are the major social or environmental challenges sort of attached to that industry or region and make a note of them. And generally, you find some crossover between some of those issues. Now, that sounds really simple, but it's not always quite so simple in practice, but that's the guts of what it's about. And whether it's, there's a formal partnership and a not-for-profit organisation involved or not, there may be or there may not be. Sort of a bit like, um, you know, who has what I want and who, who wants what I have. You've got to find that win-win between the social and the business agendas. But when you find it, uh, look, it is powerful. And I think one of the key takeaways for a lot of people, if you're thinking about this from a business perspective, it doesn't necessarily cost you any money to do it i found with many businesses it's really can be about just sort of changing the way you deal with certain things like operations or procedures and not making huge investments sure there's some examples out there where companies have made huge investments as well to grow big businesses off the back of this i get that but from a not-for-profit perspective it actually is an alternative way to start approaching businesses instead of just saying can you give us money for x or sponsor us for y It actually sort of turns it around and says, well, we think we've got some ideas about how we can add value to you and help you grow your bottom line in a way that's going to help us too.
1: What about grappling with organisations that may be on the more extreme end of activism and advocacy around certain issues and have a pretty hard line around business ethics and environmental harms and so on? How do you bring those... To opposing sides who have fundamentally different ideologies around what it means to exist in the world and do good in the world.
0: Well, you can't force people to do things. So look, if an organisation wants to remain fundamentally activist and not look into the idea, look, and I, and I get that. In a way, it needs a bit of a pincer strategy that you need sort of activism coupled with people working on the inside, I think, to make a lot of this happen. I've seen certain organisations in Australia, some well-known not-for-profit foreign aid style organizations really struggle to get on board with this but ultimately they came around a colleague of mine was was involved in one of i guess the major activist organizations greenpeace back in the 90s and he had a view that the best way forward for them might be to start partnering with business rather than doing extreme acts of activism but the organisation didn't want to go there, and so he left, but that was fine. If it's a conscious decision, that's fine. But I think this sort of circles back to where the conversation around stakeholder capitalism is going, which is a pretty chunky term. I think it's just another name for common sense. And it's just reflecting the fact that there's limits to growth. If you're a large company, the world is not infinite. I think 100 years ago, the, w- the world did seem infinite. We had resources we hadn't yet discovered. This population was 2 billion people, not eight. or We're nearly at eight. Uh, It was a completely different world, but we understand now that if we're going to grow a business, we've got to bring stakeholder groups along with us. Otherwise, there's just no market there to uh, sort of act in this very independent way. So I think we've got to work together and figure that out. And if someone, Helen Steele, who was the former CEO of the Shared Value Project, an NGO based out of Melbourne, put it really nicely. She said, if purpose for business is the why, then shared value is the how. And it helps you sort of discover the ways of doing this. That also speaks in a business language and that is extraordinarily powerful.
1: It's interesting, um, a previous guest on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Ingrid Giscus, she works for an organisation called the Ghost Gear Initiative, which is part of the Ocean Conservancy And they are looking to prevent discarded, lost and abandoned fishing gear in the oceans and to also clean up the oceans. And they're a network, they're an advocacy group as well. But I'm sure you can imagine when it comes to environmental things, there's often very extreme organizations involved in that ecosystem, plus governments, plus, you know, philanthropic organizations, plus fishing companies. And she described essentially a shared value process that they were engaging in without using those words. How do we find the shared objectives? And actually everyone in that space wants the same thing nobody wants to lose their fishing gear because it's expensive and so she talked about that and she talked about how for her her background in diplomacy rather than being an activist and coming from the NGO world actually has helped to see that but without ever calling it a shared value process
0: I'm so jealous of her because if I had my time again I would love to be in diplomacy (laughs) and taking that route I think it just sounds so cool but um I take the point. I think you've actually made me sort of reflect on this in a slightly different way, and I've come to a conclusion that I hadn't really thought about before. Clearly, the activist or activism role helps to bring the problem to someone's attention or enough people's attention to the point where they admit there is a problem. I think if you're not at that point of the common agreement there is a problem, then shared value is not going to work very effectively. However, once you get there, it probably will. I'd agree with your observations. Look, I don't do project work all the time, but I've done enough community-based work in regional New South Wales to know that you get all the stakeholders of these challenges round a table, and they represent every sector, every part of a community—from business to government to education to grassroots community members. They actually generally all want the same thing; they just have a different way of describing that thing. Yeah, and it's wonderful to be able to help people see other people's perspectives, and then try and come up with some measures that everyone's going to recognise and understand about success. And once they all realise they're heading towards the same thing, then new task becomes easier because they've bought in and then it's just a question of how.
1: Do you think the shared value model is fundamentally better than other models, for example, CSR or just straight up philanthropic giving? Is it the future of solving these really complex social challenges?
0: Ooh, that's a big one. I'd say they all perform their own role. So philanthropy is for, you know, help companies where they want to address problems that are are not impacting them as a business. There's things that they just, in an ad hoc or discretionary way or help their employees address some problems out there. And then you see, I think every organisation wants to sponsor the guide dogs, right, because they're cute and fluffy, but then, you know, Parkinson's Australia probably doesn't get so much love. So you see those weird things going on. But anyway, that's more of an expression of conscience, I think. CSR is about brand and reputation risk. So, you know, you've got to do it, but it really, it has a finite budget. It's not going to go that far. Shared value is, to reframe it and answer your question, it really is a lens for innovation for companies. And the reason it's a lens for innovation and helps people think differently is because you've got to go out and create it. You've got to find the ideas. You don't just sit at your office and expect them to come to you. It's the process of proactively making an investment in something, an environmental or social challenge, for the purpose of delivering a return to you which will be favourable in a monetary sense, but also creating a larger impact on that issue than you could through your other, I guess, approaches like philanthropy and CSR.
1: You've worked on a few large-scale social change projects. What are the specific challenges that come up when trying to affect massive social change? And I know you and I talked previously to the podcast about a role that you play in packaging, recycling and compostables in Australia.
0: Yeah, I don't want to overplay that because I play a very minor role, but it's given me insight into a project that is immense So, it's the 2025 national targets for recycling goals such that by 2025, 100% of packaging will be compostable, recyclable or reusable, which is pretty ambitious. And it just demonstrates how complex something could be because you're involving all the different strata, many parts of industry, many parts of the supply chain, along with local government who collects waste, state government that, that has certain policies in place, federal government and consumers. So... So my role is to help facilitate meetings of their stakeholder engagement group. And uh, I love that challenge because, again, it's about helping people understand other people's points of view. But ultimately, it's a project where investments have to be made to reconfigure recycling and reuse systems. And therefore, the natural response from an organisation would be, well, I don't want to be the one paying for everything if so-and-so isn't isn't paying anywhere near as much. So, you can imagine those issues will arrive. And I guess that's where government has to be fully tuned in and be prepared to co-invest if it can see if the market isn't going to just jump in and, and create all the direct investment itself. So, it's like that stakeholder management challenge or collaboration challenge on steroids. And I think it highlights that the skill of the future, or today and the future, is about influencing and being able to have the right communications to know when to use general language-neutral communications and when you have to deep dive and be specific for a stakeholder group, it's about leadership and understanding how and when to try and drive people forward.
1: And I think those things take a lot of time. You know, these are not quick fixes, and the goalposts are shifting all the time, and new stakeholders are emerging, and other ones are disappearing. And it's important to come back out and think this is a long term change project, not something that's going to be achieved.
0: That's right. And you're I'm sure very familiar with collective impact and that model. And look, I guess I've wandered into the collective impact model a little bit without intending it a few times, and that is where you're aligning players to all work on the same thing rather than have a competitive situation where they're all competing against each other rather than lining up. And I think, I guess, the more socially related collective impact challenges the challenge is often to get business to play a very engaged and proactive role again to use a shared value mindset to say if you're looking at certain industries in in regional Australia you know they might struggle to get entry-level workers so how do we help this business here that needs entry-level workers not see this as a challenge of just going out and saying we've got jobs but understanding there's there's a win-win there if they can get more local worker content into their workforce in the right way that they'll actually come out ahead in terms of dollars and cents and employee attraction and retention costs So, yeah, flipping those things around into, I guess, a business equation is is where it gets exciting, I think, and you can sometimes extend the impact.
1: I do think that sometimes there's a challenge with that in the sense that businesses are often looking for a quick fix to that problem. There's not enough entry-level workers. How do we fix it now? Because we need it right now. And I think it can be a challenge to say or to accept for them that this might take time. You know, you build that ecosystem that is going to feed you those entry-level workers. It can't just happen overnight.
0: So you just use the word ecosystem, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the perfect word for it because a lot of businesses think within the context of their supply chain and they don't really think much beyond it. Whereas this type of thinking means you've got to think about the, the total ecosystem around you. And look, it can be like really simple stuff. Say, an 18-year-old kid rocks up who wants a job and maybe fails the drug and alcohol test because, you know, cannabis stays in your system for up to 10 weeks. That doesn't mean the kid's a druggy. It might just mean he a couple of weeks ago had a smoke and it showed up. So, you know, a business might naturally say, "Okay, go away. You haven't passed the test." Or they could think a little bit differently and say, "Well, we've set up a referral pathway with Headspace or some provider." And, you know, we're willingly send you over there. They'll give you priority access. If you're keen, we can get you back on the pathway to, to coming back in about five weeks time or whatever. And again, that doesn't cost money, but it takes an abundance mindset. It takes a bit of, I guess, leadership. That's hard for all businesses to get. I would estimate that three out of 10 businesses have this mindset. Six kind of sort of understand it, but might not follow through. And there'll be one out of 10 who probably just will never get it.
1: Yeah, look, I have had some experience with the collective impact model and it's tough. It's really, really tough, particularly in the early stages, and it's tough to get stakeholders to take the lens off themselves, particularly the larger ones who are used to being the loudest, the biggest, with the most say and the most power. And I think it's a really fascinating process to watch prioritisation of an equal playing field, no matter the size of the organisation.
0: That's right. And speed or timeframes, I find, is the other big challenge because business will typically come in and, okay, let's do this now. We think we know the problem and quite often they don't know understand the problem. So you've got that recalibration there of trying to get them to slow down and really smell the daisies and take in what's going on. And on the other side, quite often social sector organisations, you know, will, will have trouble warming up and getting used to this idea because there might be distrust there and other things that need to be broached. So, you know, to say to a business, look, this might take 12 months of relationship building and trust building, There, you know, a lot of people are going to check out at that point. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and they're used to being able to go, oh, we'll just pay for that. Yeah. We'll make that happen. Yes. You, know? you
0: can't buy social capital, unfortunately. You can buy lots of things, but no. not that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Phil, I want to draw the lens back to you. What do you find most rewarding about your work? And conversely, what is the most challenging thing for you?
0: Well, the most rewarding thing is to just lead people who already have a fair idea around this. I'd be lying if I said people come to me who are going, I've never heard of purpose or shared value and I want to start doing it. That doesn't happen. Typically, they're you know, it might be a CEO or someone senior who's already got this mindset. And what they really need is the confidence and the tools to bring other people along with them. So yeah, I think i become their their buddy and, and help them with that goal. Whether it's a very brief thing, it could be as simple as a 20-minute talk, but it could be something a bit longer as well. And I find that immensely satisfying because I feel like I'm the translator of informations and I'm just reinforcing what they kind of sort of know anyway, but giving them that confidence is really useful. On the flip side, what's the hardest thing? The hardest thing still prevails today, jumping out of corporate life as a someone who's a technical specialist in an investment area and then having to run my own business, I found was quite a different thing. And even 13 years later, you know, to actually get your marketing and sales and everything down pat and better organise that when every day there's a different drag on your time for this, that, and the other. is really challenging. So I enjoy the challenge, but, yeah, it might sound a bit lame, but I think just running and managing a business is hard work.
1: Ah, it's a hard slog, absolutely. Uh, every day, especially when it's your own business and you're completely invested in it, and if you don't do it, it doesn't
0: happen. For better or for worse, emotionally attached to it, which, which is <laughs> not always great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Can you think of someone who's been your greatest influence in doing good?
0: Wow, Um, that's a really tough question. However, I'm going to park back to when I came out of the corporate world, I thought I knew a bit about life and I clearly didn't. One of the first things I did, and this was around 2008, I started visiting some of our local not-for-profits and community organizations just south of where I live, which is in the northern suburbs of Wollongong. There's some suburbs of Wollongong that have historically done it pretty tough. And I spent a bit of time with people there and I take my hat off to them, the same one organization, um, a lady called Jenny, who I've known for several years now, sort of took the time to take me in and, and not tell me that I didn't know anything, but just to talk about what she was going through every day. So my perspective changed almost overnight from one of, well, I'm just going to be the smart guy who walks in and throws out a few ideas that will solve everyone's problems to being this humble servant of other people who realised really had no idea about what was going on out, and that it was going to be quite a challenge. But if I had no idea, that meant a lot of other people who have business and other roles have no idea as well. So maybe that's my opportunity is is to try and be that conduit. Anyway, just to extend that a little bit, Jenny, her organisation in Port Kembla, has seeded the social enterprise called Tender Funerals, which is a not-for-profit funeral service, taking on not only the cost aspect of funerals, but also the cultural variations. So the main funeral providers don't really have any cultural options. And in her community, there's so many different cultures. They all have their own way of generally dealing with the death situation. So there's an economic advantage, there's a social advantage. And she just constantly challenges me because, when her business started ramping up and doing well, I'm thinking, wow, that's great. You can expand. You can maybe move here and buy this and do that. And she just turned around and said, no, we can actually just cut the cost for everyone. (laughs) So I'm going, okay, just when I think I've got a handle on this thing, someone throws the curveball at me and makes me feel humble again. It made me realize that social change takes years and sometimes decades. You just can't do it overnight. Very early on, I helped our local council with a local engineering company that had some leaders that wanted to do some good in the world. And I was there sort of connecting them with some community organisations saying, well, why don't you go and help these community organisations? That'd be good for you, it'd be good for them. But it turned out being engineers, they thought, well, if we can't solve the problem straight away, then we get no chance. There was a limited ability to understand how complex social challenges are. And although that would have done them some good, getting that perspective, you know, I realised at that point, this is hard work. It takes a lot of application. Absolutely.
1: My next question is a philosophical question borrowed from a philosopher called Kwame Appiah. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking right now.
0: Gee, it's hard to go past climate change. It's encouraging and devastating in the same breath The Edelman Trust Survey, which came out recently for, I think it was up to the end of 2020, showed that business was the most trusted institution in the world, (laughs) Uh, you know. It's it's, concerning. It's concerning. Like it's no (laughs) surprise given what's been happening in government in many places and the media was down as well. That's probably not surprising, but the not-for-profit sector was marked down as well. And I think, you know, the solution really is quite simple, but there's so many vested interests that get in the way. And I'm always reflecting on a book by Hugh Mackay called The Art of Belonging. And he pointed out something really basic um, that I'd never thought about before, that as humans, we don't do that well on our own. We rely on communities to work together. However, when you're in a community, you have that tension between the individual goal or the individual's goal and the community's goal, because what's good for the individual isn't always good for the community and vice versa. So as a species, we've become reasonably good at balancing those competing interests of the common goal and the individual. And I think climate change is just one of those challenges on steroids that we haven't quite got our head around. I do have a reasonable belief that business can crack the solution, even in spite of lack of government action. But the question is, will it happen in the timeframe required? That probably comes up a lot with that question. (laughs) It does,
1: it does. And I think there is no single answer and there is no single solution. And I think, if anything, it's worth looking at a shared value model to to tackle this problem as well as one of the ways to tackle it.
0: I mean, you could view Tesla as really a a shared value model. You could view anything GM and the other car makers are doing in the electric vehicle space as shared value in action. I think the key thing to note about shared value is it's almost like the pathway to sustainability in the sense that, you know, let's say Tesla is um, one of the leaders in this space. At this point in time, they are the innovator or one of the lead innovators. They're creating value for their shareholders because they're addressing a major global challenge in in a very profitable way. However, there comes a time when everyone else catches up and therefore they don't have that advantage anymore. But that's the point where what they're doing gets hardwired into the way we do everything. And that in my mind is where you say there's it's sustainability or it's a sustainable practice or solution. So in a way, yeah, shared value is sort of a pathway, the innovation pathway to that better world.
1: If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be?
0: Seek out perspectives and and listen. I don't think you can go wrong. You you'll never stop growing. It's hard to do. Yeah, it is. It is. Where's your favorite place on earth? Well, right now it's in Wollongong because I'm a trail runner and I just love being in an environment where I'm close to the sea, close to the hills and can get out and run on tracks, pick up leeches when it's wet, (laughs) run into other people. There's a very active community. Um, I'm just struggling at the moment to think of where else I'd rather be. No, that's perfect. Which is a good problem to have. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Now, I can see a huge bookshelf behind you. What book are you reading right now?
0: I actually get involved in a few different books, but I'll talk about, I'm in a book club, so we we have a lot of fiction going on. But the one I want to mention is, I've got it on order, I think it's on its way. It's by Klaus Schwab, who's a key driver of the World Economic Forum, and it's called Stakeholder Capitalism. And I've got to admit, I'm a big order of books. I'm not always good at following through and reading. But when I read the overview to this, it was just ticking every box. And I've rarely found that. So I'm super excited about getting my copy in the mail soon. Excellent. And what about podcasts? Do you listen to podcasts? Uh, Well, apart from yours, Lee, (laughs) I've become a bit of a nut in terms of US politics. And I've been following a lot of US political podcasts, not only because it's very current and you want to hear how things are playing out. But I think it's telling us a lot about our capacity to deal with ourselves and the capacity of systems to retain their integrity. And so I'm I'm quite fascinated at how all the processes are still playing out today, even though we've had the election in the US, for example. But there's one other, because we mentioned diplomacy earlier on. To be honest, I'm not even sure what the name, but it it's by some international security organization. I just love listening to that because they'll do a reframe on the Reagan years and and Russia, for example. And you have these scholars who come in and talk about all this stuff. And I have no reason for really wanting to listen to it now, but I just, I get sucked in.
1: Yeah. Excellent. That's what podcasts are good for. Phil, it's been so wonderful to have you on. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and we could probably keep talking about this stuff for a very long time. Um, but thank you for sharing your knowledge and experience and expertise. I think it's such an important conversation to be having and exploring how we can do better. Well,
0: thanks for having me on and really, yeah, putting me up against it with some of these questions and ideas. So I've loved it. Thank you.
1: This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jaja Wurong and Tongrong people in the Kulin nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Thanks for listening to The Good Problem Podcast. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? The Good Problem Podcast is a project of The Good Academy, an online learning platform designed to help you do better at doing good, whoever you are. Find out more at www.thegoodacademy.net. You can also find us on Facebook or Instagram by searching for The Good Academy. Don't forget to subscribe and share.